At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. On this episode, we enter the realm of the bizarre and frightening, so listener discretion is advised. And remember, always eat your vegetables, or they might eat you first. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us, and if you're at home listening, it's you too. Actually, it's you no matter where you're listening from, so if you're not home, that's also okay. Maybe you're in your car, maybe you're at work, maybe you're at the veterinary clinic or in the line at McDonald's, but you know what we think the most beautiful thing about the Cryptid Keeper Podcast is? Wherever you're listening to us is home. I'm Alex Flanagan. My co-host Addison Peacock is having. I'm Addison Peacock. (laughs) I'm Addison Peacock, and again, Alex has held me hostage in this booth for uh, three whole minutes while she waited for the most inopportune time to drop the intro on you. Uh, But it's okay because we're stronger than that. That's a trade secret, and I'm going to need you to edit that out. (laughs) You've multiple times addressed the fact that you do that. Yeah, but like I I make sure only to allow certain things to get through that filter. You know what I'm saying? I do the editing. I I am the decider. (laughs) Which is why I just try to reclaim what little power I have in this situation when and where I can. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, well. What's our cryptid this week, Addison? I don't care anymore. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Nothing matters. The cryptid this week is existential dread. Neither of us truly has the power in this world, so it doesn't matter. No, that's um, rough. The cryptid this week brought to you by pumpkin spice lattes because that's uh, most of what I've put into my body for the last uh, week of my life because it's back at Starbucks and all around you. What's that behind you? It's (laughs) It's a pumpkin spice latte. Ah. (laughs) So actually, today I know that we are often a cryptozoology uh, podcast, but... Since we're just called the cryptid keeper, not the cryptozoology, the cryptozoologist, I don't know what we'd be called. It's something else. (laughs) I decided to veer off course a little bit today and veer into cryptobotany, which is an area that I didn't really know very much about at all. But I was uh, trolling through the cryptids wiki last night, as I am wont to do, and I discovered a whole section of that wiki called Carnivorous Trees. Love it. Love everything and about that. And I got very excited, and I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. So today's episode is a combination episode. So it's cryptobotany, and then particularly the subset of that, man-eating plants. So... Let's go. Before I proceed farther, I have to obligatorily, out of the way, uh, just make a little shop of horrors joke, which is not even a joke. I'm just going to say little shop of horrors. There you go. Okay. Audrey, too. That's it? That's all they get? Before we started the podcast, apropos of nothing, you just sang like a whole 30 seconds of it. You're not, the people at home don't get that? I got to get into it. Can you give me a tempo, please? Yeah, here. Little shop. Little shop of horrors, little shop, little shop of terrors, call the cop. Little shop of horrors, whoa, oh no. And then uh, something, something, feed me, Seymour, feed me all night long. And I'm going to feed our listeners some sweet information. Oh. Some sweet information, Nectar. That was, oh gosh. <laughs> I was going to say it was really good, but then it got really bad. <laughs> I'm going to feed you guys some sweet information, Nectar, all about carnivorous plants. So. 
First of all, I want to talk about some real carnivorous plants, which I know is weird because we're a cryptid podcast. But this is one of the areas in which uh, there are several like real carnivorous plants that... Like they are both real and carnivorous or they're just real carnivorous? <laughs> both. <laughs> but there are several actual non-cryptid, like confirmed existing carnivorous plants that do not feel very far-fetched from the the ones that are not confirmed, from like the plants of legend, the plants of uh, myth. Um, and I just wanted to touch on them really quickly before uh, I get into the stuff that's not actually confirmed to exist. Because a lot of the legends that sort of st- like are going to be covered today kind of seem like they could have stemmed from these very real and confirmed plants. And I think they are super fascinating. I used to own a Venus flytrap as a child. Same. Um, I'm going to issue a quick PSA. If you have a Venus flytrap, please do not just touch the inside of its thing to make it close. Because I know it looks cool when it moves, but it uses a lot of energy to do that. And that actually really is really, really bad for the plant. And it can kill it. And the plant cops will hunt you down. Yeah, actually, the plant plants have no organized crime fighting team. But the thing about them is, they do remember every injustice brought against them, and that plant will remember what well, you've done to the it. The thing about harming plants, Addison, is that <laughs> is that nature uh, uh, finds a way. <laughs> oh, I thought we'd get off scot free without any gold bloom today, but he, oh, actually... Jeff Goldblum also uh, finds a way. Uh. So the very real, um, aside from we know about the Venus flytrap, I also wanted to talk about uh, just like a primer on the like really, really mainstream ones that you can buy at like a Home Depot. Uh, you could buy Venus. I bought a Venus flytrap at like a Lowe's when I was a child. And then, I mean, my mom bought it for me. I didn't have money. I was a child. And then there's also the pitcher plant, which if you uh, have ever seen it, it looks like a pitcher, hence the name. And it has a slippery rim around the top and it waits for, it's actually almost funny if it weren't for the fact that it's it's kind of sad, but you know, plants got to eat. Waits for like flies and other insects to smell. It's like sweet smelling nectar and come onto the rim. They slip and they fall inside and they are dissolved in the base, in the inside of the pitcher. And then it eats them. Like a but, weeping bell. Yes, exactly. Actually, I think that the design of the weaving bell might be a little bit derived from the... No, it literally is. Is it? Is it? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I it absolutely sure. is. I don't know a lot about Pokemon. I don't know where they get their design, but I would assume. This is my favorite one. Before I get into the uh, actual cryptid plants, the cryptobotany of it all, uh, the, the plant that I has been credited with a lot of the legends of man-eating plants is the corpse flower which is this enormous... I'll show you, Alex. It's just this big, stinky flower. You mm-hmm. probably know the corpse flower. It's this big... I know a weird amount about, like, dangerous plants. Me too. That's not... They're yeah. my favorite. So the corpse flower is a lot of fun <laughs> because the thing about it is it's not actually a threat to the average human being, but it's considered likely to have started rumors of man-eating plants because it is this... One of the it is the largest, most pungent plant in the natural world. It's this enormous flower. The flower is like nine feet. It can grow up to nine feet, and it gives off the odor of rotten flesh. It does this to attract flies, but because it smells like rotting flesh, people who encountered it in like early days of human exploration would assume that that smell was a dead body trapped inside the flower. Uh, that was rotting away or being eaten. But this is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard uh, is that the corpse flower has been grown, known to grow as much as four inches in a single day. That's a lot. So, like, you could 
It would barely even need to be time-lapse footage. Actually, the weirdest thought just occurred to me, and this is so unrelated, and I'm so sorry. It's okay. But I am so fascinated by botany and by, like, this sounds—this is a weird phrase—botanical warfare, um, Uh which is just, like, the idea, I think, of, like, sort of manipulating the natural world in a way— that is kind of terrifying at times. Actually, when I was in high school, I was on, I, I did Science Bowl. And my role on the Science Bowl team was that I knew, like, way too much about plant-derived poisons. Oh. <laughs> it was a lot. It wasn't, like, my specific role. I, I was not on our competitive team. Our school was, like, very competitive at Science Bowl, and it was nuts. Um, but, like, I was in the club that sort of, like, helped train and, like, from which the, the competitive team was picked. So you had to be, like, invited to, like, be in the organization. And then from there, they picked the competitive team, whatever. But I, like, knew a lot about chemistry, and I studied some earth science, and I knew a lot about plants. Yeah. And uh, then, actually, later on, I was in Ireland a few years ago, and one of the things that we did was we stopped at the uh, poison garden outside, like, I think it was Blarney Castle. Yeah. So fascinating. Wild stuff. But it just occurred to me that were you ever in, like, a zombie apocalypse, a corpse flower would be a really handy thing to have, right? Because you could, like, attract zombies to it with the smell of, like, decomposing flesh or whatever. And then you could just have your handy corpse flower pet, like, consume all of the zombies. Oh. I'm just saying that I think corpse flowers are the ideal way to survive the zombie apocalypse. That's all I'm saying. Like, that's what that whole weird, like, riff was on. Um, I like it. But I think that maybe the secret has been right in front of us this whole time. Mmm. I see. I just really want to see a zombie movie where the zombies are, like, a non-issue. Like, I want to see a thing where, like, everybody panics and it blows up in, like, the zombie apocalypse and ends up, like, not being a huge deal because rigor mortis has set in and none of them can move. So they're just kind of laying in their graves like... (laughs) Well, in World War Z, uh, in the book, not in the movie, the movie is trash. Uh, But in World War Z, uh, a bunch of the people move up north when the zombie outbreak starts because the further... When you get into the um, below... In sub-zero temperatures, they just freeze solid. They can't move. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, like, they should have no way to move anyway. Just, like, the musculature doesn't work. That's true. There's nothing scientifically that allows, like... The exchange of salt channels and like whatnot to actually power muscular contractions and there's no beating heart and so like it shouldn't work anyway not to mention even if you could move the muscles at that point or reanimate them in some way or if zombies had like blood pumping through them rigor mortis has already set in the body yeah. is already locked into a specific well, position in my opinion that's why as much as undead zombies are really really fun sorry this is a total tangent but I think that the most believable form of zombie is the 28 days later style zombie like which isn't necessarily a truly undead person but a person in the grip of like a rabies like illness yeah that um, makes sense to me but like yeah. zombies as a conventional threat have like never scared me at all. yeah just because like my science brain is like no yeah i wish i could tell you the same i wish i could tell you that i didn't used to lay awake at night thinking about my zombie apocalypse contingency plan but i did and i'm I not gonna say any names but i know people who are still very afraid of zombies is it me? Am I the one? No, it's no. not you, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was gonna I said say I wasn't saying any names, Addison. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, speaking of it's other Andrew. things... Andrew. Andrew's terrified of oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he and I will have to commiserate about that. Speaking of uh, things that eat people, Swedish botanist, this is just a preface from the Cryptids Wiki uh, piece article about uh, uh, carnivorous trees, and I just found this to be interesting, but Carl Linnaeus, the 18th century Swedish naturalist, he's the one who's responsible for uh, basically starting the system we use today of binomial nomenclature, the way we identify organisms, but he used to say that plants could not possibly be carnivorous and they only caught insects by accident. It oh. wasn't until Darwin that we that the mainstream scientific community accepted the idea of carnivorous plants. So all I'm saying is science has been weird about carnivorous plants for a while, so perhaps science 
Heights is just rejecting the idea of these larger man-eating trees that I'm about to go into and just general, like, large-scale carnivorous plants. Science's relationship with carnivorous plant life isn't, like, the most spotless. Like, there's a lot of weird debate over the years. So it's just a primer on that. But essentially, oh, my goodness, um, there are... Oh, my gosh. Okay. There are recorded accounts of specifically carnivorous trees from all across the world. And it is actually mind-blowing how I had not heard of any of these. When I think about a tree attacking people, I think about, like, the Whomping Willow and, like, trees that just attack. But you don't hear, at least I have not heard, a lot of accounts of trees that not just attack people. They are actively eating human beings for sustenance. Well, that's in um, Lord of the Rings. Fellowship of the Ring, the book, not the movie. I was going to say, I'm sorry. I am a, I am a fake fan. I have not read the books. That's fine. I read them for the first time when I was nine, which may or may not have been a great choice, but... I mean... It served me well, so... What's the carnivorous tree in Lord of the Rings? Well, it doesn't have a name. It's just, like, when they're in the... I think it's right after... It, so, like, in the book, in the Fellowship of the Ring, there's this whole segment between when the hobbits leave the Shire before they ever actually get to Bree. Mm. Um, and, like, you go through all of that, and there's this part where the hobbits are, like, on the Barrow Downs after they fought the Barrow Whites or whatever, and, like, when they're meeting Tom Bombadil. But before they meet Tom Bombadil, there's, like, this whole segment where they're in, like, this forest, and I think it's Pippin, probably, who, like, leans against a tree and, like, starts to fall asleep, and the tree, like, consumes him. Oh, and my God. And rescue him from this tree. Yeah, so, like the it's yeah. a whole big thing but it didn't um, make it in the movie there's the really the only uh tree horror i was familiar with before this research was the whomping willow and then the horrible scene in evil dead which i will not talk about any more than that if you've seen evil dead you know what i'm talking about if you haven't don't worry about it it's really bad also if you've read uh the talisman by stephen king and peter straub there's like some creepy creepy trees in there amazing so speaking of creepy trees the first one i want to cover there are multiple regional man-eating trees but the earliest well-known tale of a man-eating tree originated as a report by Edmund Spencer for the New York World. Spencer's article first appeared in the daily edition of the New York World on the 26th of April, 1874, and it was a letter, the article contained a letter published by a German explorer named Karl Liech, who, like, or Liech, um, L-I-C-H-E, who provided a report of encountering a sacrifice performed by a tribe of Madagascar to a man-eating tree. Describing the tree, the account related, the slender, delicate palpi with the fury of starved serpents quivered a moment over her head, then as if instinct with demoniac intelligence fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms, then while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly to be instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan, the tendrils, one after another like great green serpents with brutal energy and infernal rapidity, rose, retracted themselves, and wrapped her about in fold after fold, ever tightening with the cruel swiftness and savage tenacity of anacondas fastening upon their prey. Is this the typewriter cigarette guy? No, I wish. No, it's... This um, tree devoured her on a Monday. I hate Mondays. <laughs> I know, it's a lot. It was the 1870s. I don't think that's an excuse for anything. It's just, a, I'm just saying it. This same tree was given further publicity by the book Madagascar, Land of the Man-Eating Tree, a book by Chase Osborne, who had been a governor of Michigan. Well, wow, Madagascar the movie really took a turn. <laughs> I know, right? I don't remember this part. I mostly remember singing. I mostly remember lemurs. Can you imagine reading that book and then going to the movies? <laughs> this isn't the same at all. <laughs> or the reverse. Just a child who grew up watching Madagascar and their mom's like, I heard you like Madagascar. Here's a book about it. Oh, no. 
um, mom. Uh, <laughs> but Osborne claimed that both the natives of Madagascar and missionaries on the island knew about the tree. That's so fascinating. I love the, uh, there are more uh, accounts of the man-eating tree. The issue with a lot of the accounts of the man-eating tree is they're often tied up in this like weird uh, 1800s colonial perception of other uh, countries. So it's a lot mm-hmm. like of them being like, these savages on Madagascar sacrifice people to this tree. And I'm like, okay, well, you could keep your racism out of the cryptobotany if you wanted to. That would be cool. <laughs> you got but, your cryptobotany in my racism. <laughs> yeah, I would really love it. Those are two, that's those are that's one great taste and a really bad taste and they don't taste great together. Um <laughs> It's not good. It's like a Reese's cup filled with mayonnaise. Ew. Yes, exactly. Is peanut butter still in there? No. Oh. (laughs) Instead of peanut butter, it's mayonnaise. But I wanted to find or cut to a little bit more description of the Madagascar tree because it is so much. So here we go. This is taken from the Cryptids Wiki page on the Madagascar tree. If you can imagine a pineapple... Eight feet high and thick in proportion, resting upon its base and denuded of leaves, you will have a good idea of the trunk of the tree, which, however, was not the color of a pineapple, but a dark, dingy brown and apparently hard as iron. From the apex of this, eight leaves hung sheer to the ground, like doors swung back on their hinges. These leaves, which were joined to the top of the tree at regular intervals, were about 11 or 12 feet long and shaped very much like the leaves of the American aguave, um, not uh, the American agave, or century plant. They were two feet through in their thickest part and three feet wide, tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn, very convex on the outer but now under surface, on the inner now upper surface, surface slightly concave. The concave face, it's, it's just a lot of description of the leaves. But they have, they're, it's like a pineapple trunk, like a really tall, thick pineapple, and then these super long, limp, green leaves. So I'm sorry, I'm having a really good time with this mental image. So what I'm told is that it looks just like a pineapple, except nothing at all like a pineapple and more like a nightmare. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Exactly. No, you got it. You're right. You nailed it. Um, And then there was not a flower, but a receptacle, like a little like sort of uh, described as like the opening of a pitcher plant. Mm -hmm. Um, And there exuded into it a clear, treacly, liquid, honey sweet and possessed of violent, intoxicating and soporific properties so it was like a so it's got some sleep juice let's go get stoned on the death plant (laughs) let's go to the death tree and get stoned (laughs) um Parents, do you know what your kids are doing after yeah. school? They're getting stoned on the Madagascar death plant. <laughs> hey, bro, let's go get fucked up on this death tree. Um, oh, my God. Anyway, so it's a really horrible description of, uh, of a tree. Basically, the description is like that you they that a person would drink from the like floor flower opening and then all the plants would like the leaves would close around her like tendrils and then pull the person into like the mouth of the tree. And then, never in my life have I thought, let's drink mead from a strange plant. <laughs> um, clearly you've never seen the episode of Avatar The Last Airbender where they're lost in the desert and Sokka drinks from the cactus. Whether I have or not makes no difference about the fact that I have never once in my life thought <laughs> it would be a good idea. <laughs> to be fair, if you're in, like, the desert or, like, the wilderness and you have no water, you might start to get desperate, but... And then I would be initially suspicious of, like, a 20-foot-tall plant. <laughs> That's fair. I'm sorry, I want to read this horrible description really quickly. The contraction of the tendrils caused the fluid of the tree to stream down its trunk, mingling with the blood oh, and oozing viscera of the victim. Oh, that is, no, that is so bad. Um, 
So the letter that was published in this newspaper in New York World by this supposed German uh, German naturalist concluded his letter by explaining that he studied the carnivorous tree for three weeks, during which time he found several other smaller specimens of it in the forest. He saw one of them eat a lemur, and he didn't even save it. God. He named the species Crinoida digiana because when its leaves are in action, it bears a striking resemblance to that well-known fossil, uh, the crinoid lily stone, or St. Cuthbert's beads. And digiana referred to Dr. Bawu Daji, a liberal-minded, intelligent physician of Bombay. That's really nice to name. If you have a physician you admire, to name a murderous tree after them. Hey, Some wires got crossed there. Yeah. Hey, I did a really a cool thing for you. So I've got a couple other man-eating trees for you. I've got, first of all, uh, technically, I'm sorry, false advertising on this one, fake news. This one's not a man-eating tree. It's a cow-eating tree. You know, it's, it's fine. This is the cow-eating tree, and this one is uh, based in India. There was uh, a story of a similar nature uh, to the Madagascar tree, which is out of South India, which are cow-eating trees out of Mangalore. They are known to grab humans and cattle and gobble them up. Residents of Padrame near Kokoda in a forest uh, near the uh, in the the Umpanangaidi forest, they sighted one such carnivorous tree. This is recent, trying to dine on a cow. October eighteenth. 2007. Oh, wow. According to reports, the cow had been left to graze in the forests. The cow was suddenly grabbed by the branches and pulled from the ground. Ah! The terrified cow herder ran to the village um, and gathered a band of villagers to go to the carnivorous tree. Before the tree could have its meal, the owner, Anand Gauda, and the villagers struck mortal blows to the branches that turned limp and the cow was rescued. The for, um, the uh, Umpen, oh my gosh, Umpenangadi range forest officer... Subramanya Rao said the tree was described as a tiger tree in native lingo. He had re- received many complaints about cattle returning home in the evenings without their tails. Ooh. On Friday, the field staff confirmed coming across a similar tree in Padrane partially fell down. However, no detailed inquiry was made as the authorities were not asked for any report. Uh, so, there we go. This is Cow Eating Trees of Padrame. Uh, Tuesday, October 23rd, 2007, it was covered in the Express News Service of New Indian Press. So, cow eating trees in South India. Yeah, so, that's nuts. I know, right? And a really recent one, too. Like, most of the accounts you're going to see are from, like, the Victorian age. That's why, like, the yeah, the mm-hmm. book in the 1980s that was cited, like, that talked about them. Like, it's, it's a lot of older stuff. So, that was one that I found that I was like, oh, that's, like, now. That's, like, 10 years ago. Comparatively, extremely recent. Um, then my last man-eating tree, or carnivorous tree, rather, is this one is based in... Oh, my goodness. There we go. This one is based in South America. This is the Yataveo. It is uh, covered in J.W. Buell's Land and Sea, published in 1887. The Yateveo, which translates to basically, I see you, uh, oh. plant. I know, right? Yikes. Oh. All right. Is said to catch and consume large insects, but also attempt to consume humans. Its eyes are a little too big for its stomach. Fair. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Sometimes I order too much food and I think I can finish it. It just needs to take like half the human in a doggy bag home. And yeah, you know, I mean, it's, I actually have seen tips that suggest that, you know, separating your meal out at the beginning is a lot more helpful because that way, you know, oh, you can like eat the portion that you're going to mm. eat and then take the rest home. And you don't end up in that awkward spot where like you eat a little bit too much. And so then you have like not enough that's really worth taking home. Are but you if suggesting, you finish it, you're going to be. Are you suggesting the tree dismember human beings before it begins its meal. 
I'm saying if it's going to be eating humans anyway, the responsible thing to do. To, like, mitigate food waste. Right. Yeah, okay. All right. That way he doesn't have to, like, throw half the human away and then eat another one the next day, right? Like, I'm saying it's good for everybody this way. Yeah, you know. It saves human lives. It saves plant digestive systems. (laughs) It prevents food waste. Prevents food waste. All right. The yateveo is said to be a carnivorous plant that grows in parts of Central and South America with cousins in Africa and on the shores of the Indian Ocean. It's thought of as being a relative of... Pretty big family tree. Uh, It's thought of as being a, a relative of the Madagascar tree. So... There are many different descriptions of the plant, but most reports commonly say it has a short, thick trunk and long, tendril-like appendages, which are used to catch prey. Oh, some even claim, and this is my favorite part about the Yateveo, some even claim it has an eye to locate its prey with. I'm picturing an eye perched at the top, like the eye of Sauron. Yeah, that's um, pretty bad. I don't like it. I'm going to refrain from going, like, intense biology on this. That but plant no. can't have an eye. No, it serves no purpose. That Plants don't need eyes. They have so many other ways of perceiving the world around them, and that's just very human-centric. But Alex, it makes it so much creepier. It's very human-centric to assume that a plant would have any need of, like, an optic system. That's not how plants interact with the world around them. I don't need your negativity about this eye tree. It's just, like, what would... This is, no, that's nothing. That's just not anything. Okay, well, I like it. Okay, so the tree is said to live on the secluded and rarely visited Tepui, a high and misty mesa in the Guiana Highlands of South America, which grows where grows a singular shrub known to locals as the Yateveo, or I see you tree, which evolution has endowed with a predilection for human flesh. So this is, here we go. J.W. Buell gives us this description of the abomination in his seminal work, Sea and Land, published in 1887. Travelers have told us of a plant, which they assert grows in Central America, Central America, in Central Africa, and also in South America, that is not content not contented with myriad of larger insects, which it catches and consumes, but its voracity extends to making even humans its prey. I love this. This marvelous vegetable minotaur... <laughs> Is represented. He's having fun. Is represented as having a short, thick trunk, from the top of which radiate giant spines, narrow and flexible, but of extraordinary tenaciousness, the edges of which are armed with barbs or dagger-like teeth. Instead of growing upright or at an inclined angle from the trunk, these spines lay their outer ends upon the ground, and so gracefully are they distributed that the trunk resembles an easy couch with green drapery around it. (laughs) Excuse me. You know, when you look at a tree trunk and say, that looks like a comfy couch. Oh, good Lord. Um, That's its method? Like, that's its... It just looks so comfy. You just want to sit on it. The unfortunate traveler, ignorant of the monstrous creation which lies in his way, and curious to examine the strange plant or to rest himself upon its inviting stalk, approaches without a suspicion of his certain doom. The moment his feet are set within the circle of the horrid spines, they rise up like gigantic serpents and entwine themselves about him until he is drawn upon the stump, where they speedily drive their daggers into his body and thus complete the massacre. The body is crushed until every drop of blood is squeezed out of it and becomes absorbed by the gore-loving plant where the dry carcass is thrown out and the horrid trap set again. (laughs) Excuse me? So they don't, like, just devour the body. They just, like, suck it dry and then toss it out? It's on a juice cleanse. Oh, my God. It's a a horrible, horrible juicer. Here's why the eye thing bothers me so much. Here is why the eye thing bothers me. It's not because I'm trying to be a buzzkill. You are Um, still being a buzzkill. I understand that I'm being a buzzkill. I know. But... (laughs) The thing that bothers me about the eye is that, like, 
here's the thing about carnivorous plants. They are factual. We know for a fact that carnivorous plants exist. Like, that's not, it's not a stretch to imagine that these large carnivorous plants could exist. And so, like, for a man-eating plant to be a thing, like, that's not impossible. It's not even improbable. Like, that's a very realistic possibility, especially deep in these jungles, where, like, if you have a plant that large, it's going to need an efficient method of, like, getting sustenance for itself. And so it would need to take in, like, a large amount of protein. And so it's not that it would be actively looking to hunt humans. It's just that that would be what evolution had designed it to do in order to provide itself with energy it needs like it's not implausible that is a thing but what's so frustrating about it is that it takes all of the fun and creepiness and like intrigue out of it to then turn around and endow these plants with like weird alien characteristics because they don't need them because that's not what would make like that's not what evolution would grant in this functional cyst like this functional biological system and so it's weird because it would just be like a waste of energy and plants are very efficient and so I, i i don't know i think it drives me nuts because it's like this is already a very realistic thing. We don't need to, like, go weird and inventive in order to make it scary. Like, it's already scary. Yeah, that's that true. plant is not made scarier by putting a large eye on it. That's true. <laughs> in fact, that makes it sound like a Legend of Zelda villain where it's like, here's the spot you're supposed to hit. Like, that's obvious. That's true. That's true. Um, here's the thing. Uh, I've got a couple more uh, plants to cover. But... I think that one is my is is, the, is my most favorite of the descriptions of the like man-eating plants, like man-eating trees, because it reminds me so much of the way uh, a lot of other carnivorous plants already operate. Is they make themselves attractive to their prey and like seem like a place to rest, a place to land, either with sweet smells or like uh, like looking just like a safe zone, like the Venus flagship is like open <laughs> flat area to land. It looks like hey, this is a cool place, like to a hang nice leaf or like a handy cavern or yeah, a lazy exactly. boy. <laughs> exactly. <gasps> like, but but if something was evolving to catch, yeah, people, no, absolutely. That does. That's a pretty good one if you want to look like a nice soft couch. Well, and what I'm saying is I would never sit down on a couch if there were a large bulbous eye just staring <laughs> out from the plant at me. It makes the plant less scary if it has an eye. I know. I just wanted to include that because I think it's great. I would believe that it has like eye spots on it. Maybe it does. But also, what would be the point? Um, well, to keep away like large herbivores. That's true. That's true. Although if an herbivore wanders into its trap, it probably would do the same thing. Yeah. Squeeze all its blood out like a fun juicer. (laughs) That's possible. Um, So I have um, actually also, now while we're already in South America, I want to veer over to Brazil. Near the border with Guiana comes the story of the monkey trap tree, which was described by the explorer Mariano da Silva. This plant's preferred prey was, of course monkeys that were attracted by an irresistible scent exuded from the tree. The tree then enveloped the monkey with large leaves and digested the body over a period of several days after which the bones were dropped to the forest floor. I love how creepy that is. I love it. In Argentina and Bolivia, another such plant can purportedly be found in the Chaco forest region. In this case, masses of beautiful flowers are said to hang down from the canopy, which exude a powerful sleeping agent. Prey is paralyzed by this perfume and subsequently drained of blood via suckers contained within the flowers themselves. I imagine them working like little leeches. The plant is said to feed on all manner of large animals and supposedly even human beings. Now, these last two were taken from MysteriousUniverse.org which also has one more uh, terrible uh, human-eating tree. Uh, This is the death-dealing tree of the Philippines. While exploring in the Mindanao, 
Mindanao, yeah, region of the Philippines, a, a planter from Mississippi reportedly came across a 35-foot-tall tree with a dark gray color that was 80 to 100 feet in diameter, surrounded um. by bones, and emitted a foul-smelling odor like carrion. He noticed a human skull lying beneath the tree and went to investigate it. Why? When his guide suddenly stopped him and pointed at the tree in panic. That was when the horrified planter realized that the tree was reaching for him. The account appeared... Because everything before that didn't warn you this was a bad idea. <laughs> the account appeared titled as Escaped from the Embrace of the Man-Eating Tree in the American Weekly on January 4th, 1925, where it was written thus. The whole thing had changed shape and was horribly alive and alert. The dull, heavy leaves had sprung from their compact formation and were coming at him from all directions, advancing on the ends of long vine-like stems which had, which stretched across the necks of innumerable which stretched across like the necks of innumerable geese. And now that this old man had stopped his screaming, the air was full of hissing sounds. The leaves did not move straight at their target, but with a graceful oh my god, I cannot talk, but with a graceful side-to-side sway like a cobra about to strike. From the far side, the distant leaves were peeping and swaying on their journey around the trunk, and even the treetop was bending down to join in the attack. The bending of the trunk was spasmodic and accompanied by sharp cracks. The effect of this advancing and swaying mass of green objects was hypnotic, like the charm movements of a snake. Bryant could not move, though the nearest leaf was within an inch of his face. He could see that it was armed with sharp spines on which a liquid was forming. He saw the heavy leaf curve like a green-mittened hand, and as it brushed his eyebrows in passing, he got the smell of it, the same animal smell that hung in the surrounding air. Another instant and the thing would have had his eyes in its sticky, prickly grasp, but either his weakness or the or the man's strength threw them both on their backs, like his guide. The charm was broken. They crawled out of the circle of death and lay panting in the grass while the malignant plant, cracking and hissing, yearned and stretched and thrashed to get at them. When reached for comment at the time by naturalist William Clute, the author of this particular tale insisted that the story was true and that the tree did in fact exist. See, that makes more sense to me, because I think some of these we're talking about are like, oh, I'm going to put out a couch on the ground, or like, I'm going to, like, shoot my vines at you. But, like, the idea of this large organism moving in a way that's sort of, like, natural and swaying, like, like trees would do if, like, blown in the wind or something, mm-hmm. and, like, the hissing sound that sounds like wind blowing through tree leaves, like, I don't know, that's something that seems very realistic to me. And, like, that's, I think, what evolution would have primed an organism like this to do and to mm-hmm. move, like... That's really fascinating. I like that actually, one a see, lot. Actually, I like that account a lot. Me too. I find it very interesting. It's very creepy. Like, mm-hmm. here's the thing. I I read horror fiction for a living. I don't get creeped out by a lot of stuff anymore, believe it or not. That's a lie. No, okay, like <laughs> genuinely creeped out by a lot of stuff anymore. It's not It's not a lie, Alex. It's not a lie. Um, I know myself. I know myself. But that was creepy. I don't like sure, it. Sure, Jan. Her blink. <laughs> so many. <laughs> if I blink enough times, my eyelashes will fan you away from me. Okay. I don't know. I'm having a rough time. Oh, no. It's okay. Everything's fine. So I have another one. This one's actually not a tree. I just think it's really nifty. Uh, this one is the, uh, this is taken from historicmysteries.com, and this is the Nicaraguan vampire vine. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. There's actually a really cool artist's rendering of the vampire vine. I'm going to show you. I'll have to remember to tweet it out. Okay. Like a person in like yeah, that's its grasp, like just like kind of withering away. Basically, the picture is a person in like what appears to be like a desert setting, uh, being ensnared in this creepy little black vine and looking like they're sort of withering away uh, underneath it. So 
Found in the swamps of Nicaragua, local natives refer to this elusive flora as the devil's snare. It has been described as octopus-like in general appearance, so like tentacles. Uh, a naturalist called Dunstan. That's all the information I have about him. I don't know if that's his first name or his <laughs> last name. name. Dunstan. Spent two years studying the local plant and animal life and made this discovery in a swamp close to Lake Nicaragua. Dunstan was said to be collecting specimens in the area when his dog let out a high-pitched whine. Unsure whether this was due to pain, terror, or a combination of the two, Dunstan rushed to the source of the dog's sound and saw it in the midst of a network of roots and fibers. These were dark in color, not far off of black, and emitted a sticky gum with a horrible odor. Dunstan hacked away at these tendrils, but was initially unable to do so. Not only were they difficult to cut with just his knife, but they actively fought back. Dunstan did manage to save his dog— don't worry. Good, but both to me. suffered injuries during this encounter. Dunstan's skin on both hands was blistered. His dog was covered in spots that puckered. The canine was disoriented and had trouble walking after it. Not much else is known about this plant, but the locals do fear it immensely and leave it well alone. There's a little bit more information about the vampire vine on the cryptids wiki. I'm going to pull that up right now. But uh, there's also another artist's rendering, and this one makes me laugh a lot. Oh, that's good. It's just like a very distressed man. Um, no, it's like literally what it is, is it's a tree attacking Henri the Giant. <laughs> Putting him in a chokehold. Yeah, it's well, it's literally the scene from The Princess Bride where Carrie always has like his arms around Henri the Giant's neck, except it's just a plant instead it's, of it's very instead good. of Wesley. It's a nice little artist rendering. It makes me happy. Um, but uh, so William Thomas Stead, the editor of Review of Reviews. <laughs> published a brief article that discussed a story found in Lucifer magazine describing oh, a plant in Nicaragua called by the natives the devil's snare. Uh, well, yeah, no, no, naturally, yeah. if it's going to make it into Lucifer magazine. <laughs> this plant had the capability to drain the blood of any living thing which comes within its death-dealing touch. So this is the, and this article was the one that discussed the same account of Mr. Dunstan, uh, who again, don't know his full name, Mr. Dunstan, a naturalist. We don't know much else about him, but we do know, um, oh my gosh, we do know that the plant is very difficult to handle. Its grasp can only be torn away with the loss of skin. Uh, and its power of suction is contained, oh, this is, you'll like this, in a number of infinitesimal mouths or little suckers, which ordinarily closed, open for the reception of food. If the substance is animal, the blood is drawn off and the carcass or refuse then dropped. Much like uh, the other one I described that squeezes all the blood out of the Mm -hmm. uh, victim and then just drops the empty meat bag on the ground. (laughs) Sorry. I've got one more. I'm sorry. There's just a lot of death plants, and I think they're really neat. And I'm not sorry, actually, because they're great. I've got one more. It is this one is not a tree. This is a little, a little bit, uh, a little bit different. This is the death flower of the South Pacific. So somewhere in the South Pacific, it's a great way to start. Good start. Helpful. <laughs> lies the forgotten islet of El Benor, a place said to be home to a man-eating flower known only as. The death flower. Ooh. I love when all, most of these things just have the death something in them. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know what? Honestly, good. like, stick to what works. Stick to what's simple. That's how marketing works. You're supposed to just, like, it's, like, it's brand is very clear. Like, 
The flower's existence is mostly known of through the 1581 account of the explorer Captain Arkwright, who wrote of it in his journals of his travels. He described this plant as a huge, brightly colored flower with very large petals. The flower reportedly released a soporific, sleep-inducing aroma, whereupon the victim would lie down upon one of the petals. That sounds very Midsummer Night's Dream at this point. Mm-hmm, yeah. It sounds kind of lovely. Uh, it's not lovely. Upon once this happened, the flower would close and digest its sleeping prey alive. No, as you do. It seems like a fascinating account, but since it is only one report and the location of Elbanor is not specifically explained in the account, it seems unlikely we will ever know for sure just how much veracity the account holds. But it is so exciting. I like the idea of a uh, flower that works a lot like a Venus flytrap, like a large, beautiful flower. There's an artist's rendering of this one as well, which depicts these like beautiful, big, tropical flowers and a little person laying down, attempting to lay down on one of them, and it's like starting to close around that him. That is a fairy. That is a small, small person. No, it's a giant, giant flower. No, it's just a very small person. <laughs> Alex, it's a huge flower. Look at this. Look at the size of these trees, like, comparatively, and then look at... No. <laughs> you don't know how big the trees are. Every single thing in this forest is just, like, ten times larger than it should be? Yes. Then why can we not find this island? <laughs> It can only be found by those who already know where it is. We have satellites. <laughs> okay. We have sent people to space, <laughs> Addison. What if it's like a it's like a Themyscira? You can't find it. <laughs> then I'm gonna need people to stop pretending like it's a very real threat to like anyone who is currently going to like be listening to this podcast. That's fair. That one's not. Okay, I want to show you some one more artist's rendering. This is not of a specific carnivorous plant. This is just an artist rendering in general of a carnivorous plant, and I'm obsessed with it. That's pretty cool. It's really cool. You want to give it a little description? What do you? How would you describe um, this? Okay, so I'm gonna need you to think of a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, sizing on all of these is so weird. Like, there are references, and it's just not... Like, this plant looks like it would be maybe about the size of, I don't know, like a ficus or something. Um, but then there's, like, there are human skulls laying near it in a way that implies that it's actually much, much larger than that. Yeah. It kind of reminds me a lot of the Martian pods from the first animated Justice League movie. All right. You know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. The one where, like, they assemble the Justice League that kicked off the whole, like, animated series that was really, really excellent back in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. It kind of looks like one of those, except with, like, um, these plant claws that sort of look like xenomorphy things mm-hmm. extending over the top of it. Um, and then it's got, like, a base, sort of like a thistle. Yeah, and, and what's a, inside and the a pod? Thick trunk. Oh, it's a human man. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a human it's man. It's a very dead human man. <laughs> yeah, I was going to get to that eventually. <laughs> I don't know why I was so excited for that. And what's in the pod? What's in the pod? <laughs> what's in the pod? It's Gwyneth um, Paltrow. It's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. There's a few other really fun artist renderings. Maybe I should just tweet out this article because from Mysterious Universe Network because idea. there's a lot of really fun artist renderings of plants here. The one that you liked the best, the me- the moving one. I do um, like that. Yeah, it's, it's like really stretching cool. out. I am obsessed with that. I am obsessed with um, plants that move quickly like that. The idea of like a plant moving at the speed we ex- like because we know plants move. They mm-hmm. like phototropism is a thing. Like Venus flytraps are a thing. But a plant that like moves its entire like setup very quickly like yeah, a, it's pretty wild. Yeah, is is very creepy and just just like not not a, but again doing yeah. it in like a realistically believable way oh yeah i know i've been like a major scully this episode and okay. i apologize I, understand. I, I know you're like a plant head a little bit i get it it's fine it's fine i'm just gonna remember this next time you have encrypted <laughs> so something we have not done in a hot minute 
What are your survival tips for oh, yes. death plants, Addison? I've got a lot of them, actually. So, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, oldie but goodie. It's a classic for a reason. Don't go in the woods. But if, if you are a naturalist, a botanist, an outdoorsy type, and you just can't help yourself, and you just gotta go out in the woods, um, I would suggest that you... Wear some sort of, especially if you're in one of the regions with the plants that involve uh, emitting smells, soporific scents that like knock people out so that they can be digested. I would suggest wearing some some manner of uh, like mask, um, like a fume guard like you use when you're working with paints or like uh, just a face mask you would wear like to protect against germs if you have or like block germs if you have a cold or the flu or whatever. You know what I'm talking about, the little ones people wear over their mm-hmm. nose and mouth. I would suggest something like that. If you want to go really out there with it uh, and you have a gas mask, you could wear a gas mask, but it might look a little suspicious like of a park ranger or not a park ranger. I, a, wildlife a naturalist, ranger. Yeah. wearing my gas mask for a walk. In the All right, look, Alex, safety has a price. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I think uh-huh. more like directly to the point. Um, eat first and make sure you have plenty of water. That way you're not going to be lured in by, like, the food or beverage offerings these plants oh, no, try to entice you with. But some of them aren't even trying to entice. They're just straight up, like, chloroforming people in the woods. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then also, I would suggest you make sure you're very well rested so that, and make sure you stretch before you leave and eat a banana to avoid cramps because, muscle cramps, because then you will not be tempted by the couch, the couch offering. Yeah, maybe there's, like, uh, something you can eat beforehand that'll, like, make you sort of unappetizing to these plants because that's a way actually that a lot of like natural survival skills in the uh, the animal world work. Unfortunately, I don't know what the plants are attracted to in people, so I don't know what that would be. Oh, and um, I know that you don't want it to come to this, guys, because I know we want to protect the natural environment, but if something becomes an imminent threat to you, sometimes the game changes a little bit. I hate to say it, but like, weed whacker. (laughs) Weed whacker. Yeah, where's your extension cord going to go? Addison. I'm sorry. Do they not make a cordless weed whacker in the year of our Lord 2017? <laughs> we have put men on the moon. I mean, I think they make cordless ones, but you have to like charge the battery up. For well, then make sure your battery before. is charged. Make sure your weed whacker battery is charged. Next time you go for a pleasant hike, make sure to carry along an additional several pounds of weight with your weed whacker. Here's another idea. If you're walking in the woods, you know, just going for like a hike or something, and you reach the point of the forest where there are like 20-foot tall man-eating plants, turn back. Yeah, there's also that. Like... Actually, most of the areas where these plants occur are places where you would need to take a lot of precautions to go into that nature anyway. Yeah. Like, if you're in jungles and that sort of thing, there's a lot of dangerous nature there that isn't just man-eating trees. Like, And buddy system. Take somebody with you who knows the area. And make so sure you that run they can... faster than them. That is not at all where I was going oh, with that. Sorry. Yeah. Hey. To sacrifice them to appease the... Make sure you sacrifice your helpful friend who saves you. <laughs> Make sure you sacrifice your helpful plant. Your helpful plant. Make sure you sacrifice your helpful friend to a, to appease the appetite of the giant plant. Yikes! Um, and uh, if Little Shop of Horrors is anything to go off of, if you feed your uh, love interest's abusive boyfriend to the plant, then you will receive success and fame and fortune. Now that so, I do condone. Yeah, I'm absolutely fine with you feeding your your. Well, I mean, like, anyone's not even your love interest. I'm not saying that you should like try to win the heart of somebody by feeding their abusive, you know, partner. But I'm just saying that like abusive partners in general like are totally great plant fodder. Like, yeah. yes, you can Just get rid chuck of them, them in there. 
Yeah. You don't need that kind of negativity in yours or anybody's life. Let exactly. the plants deal with that. Let the plants deal with that. It, nature has developed this system for us. Yeah. And I'm just saying that it would be rude to abuse the natural order of things. Yeah, from plants we emerged and to plants we shall return. Exactly. Um, That's not what I was saying. Ashes I like to ashes, plants to plants. Plants to plants. <laughs> I don't even know ashes anymore. Ashes to ashes, dentist to dust. That's good. <laughs> if you know any dentists, no, I'm not. Not all, hashtag not all dentists. Um, it's fine. But anyway. Anyway, I think, yeah, I think that's pretty much, survival tips are pretty straightforward on that one. There's not a lot of weird niche things with that. Just like, you know how to deal with plants and you know how to deal with danger. I trust you. I trust your instincts. At this point, yeah, I think we've brought you along for the journey enough that we're like sort of starting to groom you guys into what we hope are people well-equipped to deal with like the pseudo-natural world and like the the weird place in our planet that exists between reality and fiction. So Mm -hmm. the weird, the wonderful. As always, navigate it carefully. The very bad. Um, Now there are, of course, things we'll cover in the future with more niche uh, or like specific solutions, but for something like this, it's 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 uh snacks and caution. I mean, I think yeah. that's a pretty good life snacks motto and in general. Caution. That's like the Hufflepuff house motto, right? I was gonna say, um, I always have fruit in my purse, and I'm always worried, so I'm ready. So there you go. I'm always prepared for the <laughs> you worst. You were groomed for this. I was born for this moment. Uh, so I think that's yeah, that's about everything to do with uh my little like foray into crypto botany. And uh, yeah, that should cover us. So thank you for letting me take us on a take us on a, a plant a plant journey. I yelled a lot, but I enjoyed most of it. Oh, well, isn't that that's just kind of the podcast? That's fair. Yeah, we yell a lot and enjoy things. So, <laughs> you know, um, announcements. Announcements. Yes. Uh, would you like to uh, bring us into this? Yeah, sure. So here's something cool that we are. Uh, I won't. Well, I won't say in the works because like it's a thing. Um, but as you guys know, we have grown pretty quickly um pretty significantly and we are thrilled with that we are honestly so so honored so humbled so delighted by the fan response to the cryptid keeper and by everything you guys have given back to us and everything you've done for us and the amount of people that we've reached and touched and connected with that is honestly my favorite part of this podcast and i think it's addison's too is just the sheer number of people that we've met and interacted with and had the chance to sort of share our passions with and hear back from it's awesome it's very important to us that the crypto keeper remains a largely fan-driven platform and so as mm-hmm. we've expanded, we've had to sort of start taking a look at that. You know, we have all these projects coming in and things like getting a merch store out for you guys or like talking about this cryptid dating sim or like trying to figure out maybe potentially doing like live shows or events in the future, things like that. But unfortunately, we are two people and we can't stay on tax with all of that as well as keep, you know, our day jobs and the lives that we have to live in our normal obligations because unfortunately... Um, the response to our Patreon has been great, but we can't afford to make this our full-time gig. Yeah. So that having been said, you know, we have a couple options. We could have either tried to join up with a podcast network to get some support that way, or we could have reached out for more, like, strictly paid content or et cetera, et cetera, or we could have closed off ourselves to our fan base a little bit and just focused on making the content and putting out of the world letting you guys have it. But none of those really felt to us like the right way to go. So what we've done instead is we have effective immediately brought on a production team. So we have three new executive producers for the Crypto Keeper podcast. And um, I am really excited to announce that they are all three of them people who are longtime fans of the Cryptid Keeper, people that we met through the Cryptid Keeper, who have been great contributing members back to the podcast. So it's not anybody actually that we knew before we started this project. It's just like people that we have met and like had the joy to come to get to know and connect with by doing this, which I think is part of what's so cool about it to me. But uh, we are so, so happy to have them on board and have them sort of helping us figure out where to go next for you guys. 
Yes, and so that means we are happy to welcome to the Cryptid Keeper team um, Brian Field, Buddy Forbes, and Lori Malisi. Yeah, so those are people that we're so, so excited to have with us. We uh, just had our first, like, Facebook video chat production meeting. It's great. So in the future, that's going to help us a lot, we think, with sort of streamlining the process of things, being able to have more irons in the fire at once, and continue to remain directly connected to you guys in a way that will also allow us to take all of your feedback into consideration and get as much of our content out to you guys as possible. So that doesn't necessarily mean any huge change for you guys. It's just sort of a change in the way that we're going to be doing things here just by sort of expanding our production team and allowing us to have more going on at once. So hopefully what that signifies is that you'll start seeing a lot more progress and a lot more of our sort of side projects effective ASAP. Um, which is nice to so keep an eye out for that. We're yes. really, really excited. We're so glad to have them on board. Like I said, these are awesome people that we've met just by doing this. And our thanks goes out to them as well as to all of you that we've met in the process of this like strange and beautiful journey that we've taken. Absolutely. <laughs> the community is one of the best parts of this. It's one of the things that makes it so much fun and makes it one it like makes it so enjoyable to come back every week and do this yeah on that note um make sure you're following us on twitter at crip keep pod or following me and addison on our individual twitter accounts which are linked through the crypto keeper twitter um as of right now i'm pretty sure all three of those accounts both mine and addison's personal accounts and the crypto keeper account have like our dms open so you can contact us with cool cryptid stories you can tweet directly at us and we tend to really try very hard to interact with you guys and maintain meaningful conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have our Facebook group, which is the Cryptid Keeper Appreciation Group. Come join. It's a lot of fun. There are like fun pictures in there every day, things that we like talk about and like weird questions. Um, It's where we get a lot of the suggestions for either our material for upcoming episodes or like Patreon stuff. Our Patreon is also uh, under the Cryptid Keeper and our Facebook page where you can follow our official updates is also at the Cryptid Keeper. Yes, and we have our email open as well for people to submit uh, questions, queries, and particularly right now we're collecting listener stories. So if you or a friend or a family member have had like any kind of encounter or you have like a family legend that pertains to cryptozoology or anything like that, we would love you to shoot us an email if you don't want to reach us if you don't want to reach out to us on Twitter, and that is cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. We've also got our Etsy shop for you guys where you can buy our stickers. We're getting lots of really cool pictures back of people who have done those and like put them all over, you know, their binders, their notebooks, or their cars, or their cats, and it's great. <laughs> it's the Cryptid Shopper on Etsy. That's how you find us. That's where our stickers are for sale, and you can find them there. Uh, so show off your Cryptid Keeper pride to the world. <laughs> We're thrilled with that. Also, huge thank you to everyone who's purchased orders through the Cryptid Keeper shop so far. It's been really awesome. I wasn't sure people, like, I just didn't really know what to expect with that, but people really came out of the woodwork and were like, stickers, please, now. And I was like, ah, yay. Yeah, it's been pretty consistent. Um, pretty awesome. We're going to have more merch up there for you very soon. Yes. Um, so we have a few other things in the works. And again, if there's something you have suggestions on, specific things that you want to see, like if you're like, hey, I'd really love a Cryptid Keeper coffee mug, or it would mean the world to me if I could get a... Cryptid Keeper pencil case um, yes. <laughs> or whatever. Let us know. Yes, because like uh, like you said, like Alex said, so much of this is fan-driven and we want to keep it that way. We want to like have this be a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not a one-way process. So I think that is everything that we wanted to cover. And so bringing this episode to a close, uh, as always. Oh, uh, oh. really quick. Um, all of our listeners in Florida and in California oh my gosh, yes. and otherwise on the southern border or in Puerto Rico or Guam or anywhere that's like being just hammered, please stay safe. <laughs> like yeah, it's, it's our hearts are with you guys. 
And it's it's really it's been we know it's really scary and really big, and we've been keeping an eye on everything, and we are keeping you all in our thoughts and hope that you're all staying safe and careful and hope that everything turns out okay. Yeah, it's easy to talk and laugh about the scary things that may or may not be real, but the scary things that are very real and are lingering on the edge there. I mean, a lot of people have done a really amazing job sort of tackling it with humor and the best parts of the human spirit. Um, We just want you guys to know that we're with you. And if there's anything we can do, reach out to us. Um, I don't know what that might be, but if you need something to help you make it through your day, tweet at us and we'll do everything we can. Yes, exactly. Um, We just, all we really want to do is just be able to like do something, anything to be a bright spot in dark times. So I think. So on that note. On that note, uh, as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. (laughs) 